Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. My typical co-host, Carrie Ellevelt, she is out sick, hoping that she uh, recovers quickly. Today, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court and all the ways it's screwing up our society, eroding our rights, and putting our very democracy at risk. So joining me to talk Supreme Court is one of our more pop, most popular guests and one of my favorite people altogether. It's Ellie Mistal. He is the justice correspondent at The Nation. He is also, very importantly, the author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. And, and Ellie, I'm going to admit up front, I haven't read the full book yet. I'm, I'm, what I have is amazing. <laughs> it is absolutely incredible. And just to everybody listening... Uh, this is not a dry polemic on the Constitution and the state of the American legal system. It is actually an incredibly vibrant read. And uh, you talk about how anger fueled your writing of this book. And I, it, it actually makes it a much more interesting read. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Marcos, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me um, on the show. So yeah, anger is a huge part of my writing process and a huge motivation for me to write this book. As you said, it is not a dry, dusty, legal tome. I do not want it sitting on a shelf in some law library um, in 50 years. I want it to be read now by people who, who, are, who are desperate for change. Because I believe that if more people understood the courts like I understand them, if more people understood that what the Supreme Court was doing, more people would be as angry as I am about it. And more people would be um, committed um, to fighting to change it, for, uh, fighting for change on that body. Right. We have three branches of government. The Congress, the legislative branch, that gets a lot of attention. The president, the, the executive branch, that gets the most attention. The Supreme Court is just as important as the other two branches I just mentioned. In fact, the Supreme Court has the power to veto the other two branches and take away laws and, and rights and responsibilities that we have voted on through popular elections. The Supreme Court, the unelected, unaccountable body can just rip that away from us. And most people don't know what it does. And most people don't know how it operates. And most people give them the benefit of the doubt when they deserve nothing of the sort. So yeah, anger, hatred, vitriol, all of that is part of the process. I want people to read my book and come out of it more angry, but also more resolved and more committed to fighting for change. Yeah, unaccountability is sort of a key tenet of what you're talking about, right? I mean, it can do these things and there's nothing we can do about it. They are unaccountable. They, um, they serve the whole lifetime. Right. And, let, and, and let's think about lifetime appointments for a second, right? Lifetime appointments from the perspective of the 18th century, right? From literally the perspective of the 1700s means something very different than it means now, right? In the 1700s, oh, they didn't have right. things like Pfizer. 
right? <laughs> in the 1700s, you could die in a duel with your buddies, right? You could fall off your horse and get gangrene in the 1700s, right? So, like, their concept of like, oh, you'd go out on a, you'd go out on a, on a, on a, when it's raining and you'd catch a, what would they call it? You know, you'd, you'd catch a cold and that was it. You're done. You're done, right? If you want to go in the 1700s from New York to California, it took you three months and you had to eat your friend on the way, right? So, like, <laughs> the concept of for life for the people who wrote the constitution is just radically different than what for life means to us today. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, the most recent uh, Supreme Court appointee, soon to be um, the second most recent because Ketanji Brown Jackson is coming. Um, if she serves for as long as Ruth Bader Ginsburg served, um, the woman she's replacing, Amy Coney Barrett will be serving until the 2060s. All right. She will outlive not just me, but many of the people who are listening to the show. There are people. So so, so the, the kind of being able to wield power for that long of a period of time was simply not part of the real understanding of the founding fathers. And certainly a thing that I think in our current uh, situation radically unbalances the court within our constitutional structure. They're overpowered in part because of their lifetime appointments, because there's no way to hold them accountable for what they do. So I go back to, again, it's not just, it's not just Robitussin jokes. They're, they're, they're real world problems here. I mean, I think most people have recently become aware of the rolling ethical disaster that is Clarence Thomas and his wife, Virginia, uh, Jenny Thomas, the leaker. Uh, Right. (laughs) Obviously, at least one of the one of my Hollywood squares for the leaker. What can be done to force Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from future insurrection cases? I will tell you constitutionally, nothing, nothing can be done other than literal impeachment. The same process by which we use to impeach a president, we can use to impeach a Supreme Court justice. And that's it. Absent congressional impeachment, nothing can be done to stop these people from this kind of clear, robust and and risable ethical uh, problem that Clarence Thomas uh, has forced the rest of us into. Um, So, again, the the idea that these people serve for life, they serve for life without accountability. That's a huge problem in our modern context. So I'm going to read a a. It's a couple of sentences from your introduction, because I think it's very important to sort of a foundational uh, tenet that will just not not just inform this conversation today, but also should inform everybody who's listening's view about the broader issue when we're talking about the founding fathers and the Constitution. And this is I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I think this is one of the most um, consequentially important points that I that I've seen in years. Like it, it just kind of you know blew my mind. And so you write. Quote, you rarely see liberals make the point that the Constitution is actually trash. Conservatives are out here acting like the Constitution was etched by divine flame upon stone tablets, when in reality it was scrawled out over a sweaty summer by people making deals with actual monsters who were trying to protect their right to rape the humans they held in bondage. There is a reverence that is attached, that is sort of indoctrinated in us as a society for the founding fathers and for the constitution itself. And you very systematically shred that and you point out how ridiculous it is to, to act like this is something that, that like you said, it was etched in divine flame and that we can't do anything about it. 
the people who wrote the Constitution were exclusively, they were only allowed to be white males, right? Property were, owners too, right? Part, white male, wealthy property owners who were either slavers or colonists. There were some abolitionists who were therefore, who were nonetheless willing to make deals with slavers and colonists. Most of the people who were there were white men in their 30s. So now imagine in 200 years us looking back at the at the summer project. Because remember, this is all done over a one sweaty summer with no air conditioning in Philadelphia. So imagine us looking back 200, 250 years from now at the summer project of Justin Bieber and Zac Efron. <laughs> and thinking, well, okay, we got to – this is what we have to base our entire laws. You know, if Robert Pattinson signed it, that means that we don't need to ever consider that amendment again. Like, that is what these people want me to believe. And I'm sorry, no. I'm not saying that the Founding Fathers didn't have some good ideas. So they, they, had some, so they had some really great ideas. You know, they didn't actually – follow through on most of them and then apply their ideas to people who look like me or women, but whatever, some of their, their ideas were, were, were good. But to imagine that this document represents the best enlightened society can do, it's just folly. That's just, that's just not true. This is not the best we can do. It's not even a particularly good attempt at it when you consider the demerits that we would put on the Constitution, right? Like, how good was your document really if we get into a hot shooting war over it literally less than 100 years later? How yeah. good was your document really when we even after we have that hot shooting war and we amend the document to include all the people that you all forgot about when you were writing it the first time? It takes us another hundred years and another civil uprising after the Civil War to even begin to apply some of those new amendments to everybody who's living here. What kind of democracy are you running when people don't even get to vote for their president directly? Yeah. When, when, when the person who wins the most votes for the presidential election doesn't always end up being the president. How is that? How is that rational? And as I've already said, how is it such a great uh, um, constitutional checks and balances of power when you have one branch of government that's unelected, unaccountable, yet can veto the other two branches and is appointed for life? Like how, how great was that document really? When you break it down and look at it kind of line by line, point by point, some good ideas some really dumb ideas and a bunch of ideas that haven't ever been applied equally to everybody living here just for a day. I mean, even even <laughs> our peaceful transition of power, which wasn't so peaceful, really hinged on frickin' the vice president, Mike Pence, doing the right thing. And he wasn't even constitutionally required to do the right thing. Yeah, was the, 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 the idea that there are constitutional loopholes um, should frighten everybody, right? Because, it, uh, because, and again, this makes, if you put yourself in the mind of an 18th century slaver, this makes sense. Because in the minds of the people who wrote the Constitution, everybody's basically the same, right? Because they're only talking to one class, one you know, 1% of the population of the country is kind of who they're thinking of when they're thinking about constituting the government, right? It literally wasn't about, women. It literally right? wasn't women, much less slaves, anybody they're, that wasn't. talking about people who were all in the same club. Remember, one of the greatest, I think, failures of, 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 of creativity, of ideas that you saw at the Constitutional Convention is that the people who wrote the Constitution didn't think there would be parties. 
which is yeah. dumb. I mean, there were parties all over Europe. There were parties. Um, there, there were partisan politics all over the rest of the world. But the dumbasses here thought that somehow America would be exceptional and not have political parties. That didn't last past the death of George Washington, right? And, and like that's that, why that idea that's was so you- dumb. It was blown <laughs> up before you got out of the 1810s. But that's they wrote this document in a way as if parties would not be a thing, right? So there And were- impeachment is a perfect example of that, right? Impeachment mm-hmm. does not work in a world with parties. It, it, certainly not the ones, not the kinds of parties that we have. Maybe there's some other, you know, maybe there's some other world where, where the where, where where it's more like the Avengers and Tony Stark can like get together with Thor. But in our world, <laughs> there this impeachment is is a useless uh, threat against public officials or Supreme Court justices, right? So again, like there, and again, I'm not when I say the Constitution is trash. It's like people are like, oh, really? It's so if it's so bad. Well, then how would you do better? Like. Popular election of the president? Like, <laughs> I mean, this is not a hard question. <laughs> that was supposed to be a gotcha, right? Like, I'd I make abolish the Senate or at least have both houses, the people vote as opposed to the land vote. How about that? Like, the 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 problems with the Constitution are obvious to anybody who wants to take a serious look at it. But as you said, Marcos, and I don't want to leave this point because it's an important one, we have been indoctrinated to think that the Constitution was basically given to us on high. It's our, it's the American Bible, is the U.S. Constitution. And I get that at some level because we don't share, as a nation, we don't share an ethnicity. We don't share a religion. Don't let Tucker Carlson ever tell you differently. We do not share an ethnicity or religion or a culture. We are a melting pot. We are a mishmash of lots of different people. So like what holds us together as a nation? Like what's our nationalism, right? Our nationalism becomes the ideas in the constitution. That's the that's the interstitial force that binds us all together. We're not like the French, right? We don't have we don't, we can't go back to like I remember when my grandpappy Charlemagne he wants like we don't have that for our for our for our society, right? For our right. culture. So the Constitution, <clears throat> the ideas in the Constitution are what binds us together, which is why they're so revered. And so my response to that, or my question for that, is great. Let's try taking those ideas and applying them to everybody who lives here. Let's not just have, you know, the the freedoms that black people fight for, that brown people fight for, that women fight for, that the LGBTQ community fight for. What are we really fighting for? All of us are fighting to get to the point of a white heterosexual landowner in 1787. That's all we want. Right. We want the same <laughs> rights as white men have had since 1787. That's, I don't think that's, that's too much to ask. That's very. That's a very aggressive agenda that you're uh, <laughs> that you're promoting. I would like so, to have as many rights as Ben Franklin. That's it. No more. No so less. you 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 talk about how some ideas are actually okay. They just haven't been implemented in any way that is equitable and lives up to those ideals. And one of the examples you talk about is, is cruel and unusual punishment, right? And we don't need to get into it. It's just a very obvious one that, okay, it looks, the words are wonderful and, and, you know, they look great on paper. We don't definitely don't live in that society, but one of them that I do want to bring up is the second amendment is very relevant right now in, in the aftermath of just, yet another school massacre. And the Second Amendment, you have these originalists on the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas, you know, like, and, and Alita, who like, well, if the right didn't exist, 
at the time of the founding fathers, it's a fake right. And obviously undermining almost pretty much everything that has come afterwards. That is not a right granted, like you say, to white male property owner, rich people. So, but the Second Amendment, the words are pretty plainly obvious. It literally says well regulated. Somewhere along the way, these quote originalists just happen to skip the part that it talks about for a for a militia and for well regulated. What happened? Yeah, well, this originalists do what they often do is that when they're confronted with history that they don't like, they just make something else up. The the current understanding of the Second Amendment, the current conservative interpretation of the Second Amendment was invented by the NRA in the 70s, all right, in the 1970s, all right, because for the first 200 years of American jurisprudence, the idea that firearms and weapons should be regulated and the idea that you had a right to bear arms was not in any conflict, right? There were gun regulation laws throughout our entire history. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had one of the most famous ones, right, where he he's the one who kind of basically invented classifications. That's a shotgun. That's a rifle. That's a handgun. Right. Like this goes the, the idea that the government had a role in regulating arms sales goes way, 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 way back in our history. But in the 70s, the hardliners in the NRA kind of took over that organization. Previous to, like in 1950s, the NRA is just, you know, I like to shoot Bambi's mom. It's just like those kinds of things, right? (laughs) And it kind of turns into this lobbyist thing in the 70s when hardliners take over. They call it the revolt in Cincinnati. And they, through their marketing campaign, essentially invented this right to bear arms for personal self-defense. And that right was never articulated in a Supreme Court precedent, ruling, whatever, until 2008. Just just to give you a sense of like how recently we're talking about, right? It wasn't until they elected a black man president that suddenly the originalists came up with a right to bear arms for personal self-defense. That was invented by Scalia in 2008 that goes back to the NRA in the 1970s. That, that's not from American history. You know why the Second Amendment is there from American history? It's to stop slave revolts, right? They, and that's not me... Speaking out of turn, that is Patrick Henry. That is then Virginia Governor George Mason when they were arguing for the Second Amendment. Because remember, people wrote the Constitution, didn't think that we needed any amendments. They thought James Madison thought that he had done a fine job. But all the anti-federalists were like, no, 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 we need some rights written into the Constitution. And James Madison was like, okay. And so they, they, I, I, I compare James Madison to Aaron um, in the Exodus story, right? Like Moses is up on the mountain. They're like, Aaron, build us a golden calf. He's like, we don't need one. Build us a golden calf. And Aaron's like, okay. And he builds them a golden calf, right? That's the Bill of Rights. James Madison building something that he didn't think that they needed, but did it for political reasons, right? So Henry and Mason, they say to Madison, we need the Second Amendment because slavery is, their words, detested in the North. Well, under the original Constitution, it seemed like the militia was something that only the federal government could raise, and they worried that the federal government would be dominated by Northerners. Well, they needed the militia because the militia was the principal way of putting down slave revolts in the South. Right. Like my, my family, my father's from Haiti. We know something about slave revolts. Right? right. And what you find is that to hold people in bondage against their will, you need a military advantage and you need a numerical advantage. And the South, the white Southerners had that, but not everywhere. 
There were pockets in Virginia. There were pockets in South Carolina where the enslaved people outnumbered the whites. Um, and they were worried about those, those plantations would occasionally revolt. And when that would happen, they would send in the state militia. So well-regulated militia is literally ripped from Patrick Henry, ripped from George Mason, them saying that they needed to be able to train and quote-unquote discipline, that means arm, their state militias to put down slave revolts. That's why the Second Amendment is here. Well-regulated is not a throwaway line. It's, it's the entire fulcrum of the, 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 the liberty. So what happened? Originalists then, just pretend that it it's it's not. I mean, but how? <laughs> what would there's got to be an argument, right? Alito had to make some a phrase, you know, turn a phrase, something to justify ignoring. So I, I point this out in the book. Scalia and I are using the same George Mason speech to make our arguments. Scalia just cuts it off a little bit earlier than I do. So Scalia uses the part of his speech where George Mason is talking about the threat to their personal safety, which is true. George Mason spends a lot of time in this speech talking about Patrick Henry, spends a lot of time in his speech talking about threats to personal safety. But their threats to personal safety were threats from enslaved yeah. people revolting. Scalia never writes that part in his opinion. <laughs> Convenient. I'm, I'm, I'm not, that's just, Scalia cut, when, when, they, when they get to the point where they're talking about who they're afraid of, who is the threat to their personal safety, they're talking about slaves, Scalia never mentions that part. So, so when you say, how did they do it? I mean, I don't know how to, else to put it. Like, they just, they just made it up. They okay. were working from the same text that I'm working for. They were working from the same facts, from the same history that anybody can access. They just made up their alternative version of why those uh, those 18th century slavers wanted the right to bear arms, whereas I kind of followed their argument all the way to the end. Now, it's funny because from a from a I'll, I'll give you this from an intellectual perspective, if Scalia wants to say had wanted to say the second amendment has evolved has improved has matured from its slavers reasoning and now has evolved to encompass a right to bear arms for personal self-defense i would be interested in that argument i believe that the constitution lives and breathes and evolves and changes with the our times so right. i you can make an argument to me that i would agree with that the second amendment has evolved beyond its slavers intent but if you're going to say that it's evolved beyond its slaver's intent, then I can certainly say it's also evolved beyond the unfettered access to military-grade weapons, right? We don't we don't need that then. Yeah, <laughs> and the Second Amendment evolves in who and how you can use a gun. Then I can say the Second Amendment evolves in terms of what kinds of guns you have access to. Yeah, and a conservative block can't make that argument because then it would undermine everything else that they're trying to do. It, you know, it's the originalist exactly. intent. If, there's, if, they, if they concede that, yeah, society evolves and things happen today that may, maybe didn't happen 200 and some years ago. And, and they don't want to open up that can of worms. Now, you pointed out today that, that know, there's no... Like, there's no what, what do I think Thomas Jefferson would say if he saw you today? And I'm thinking, Thomas Jefferson saw me to be like, wow, you let your slave learn to read? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what say? Right? It's not, they, don't, they don't have relevance to our current... Sorry. You were asking I mean, how, how, how shocked would he be that the women folk can vote, right? I mean... Right? 
What so, is that up in the sky? It's a dragon. It's a plane, Tom. Chill out. <laughs> like, that's what they would say. They don't have any relevance to what's happening today. So you you were you were tweeting earlier that that there, there's no decision from the Supreme Court this week. There's there's like 60 decisions to be rolled out. And, and so it was probably the week that they were going to roll out yet another gun related decision and that they held back on it for political purposes. Can you talk a little bit about what that decision would do? Yeah. So this is a little bit of tea leaf reading, but one of the, the only outstanding case they have less from November, from when arguments in November. So their oldest outstanding case is this case called New York State and Rifle and Pistol Association, v. Bruin. It's a guns case that attacks the concept of permitting laws in New York State. Right now, to get a permit for, for right now, you have to get a permit in order to own a gun in New York, and you have to show cause for why you need to own the weapon. So, this case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, is attacking New York's gun permitting laws, either asking them to remove the for cause uh, part of the law. So, like, I don't, I can just, I just apply for the permit. I don't have to tell you why I want one, and you just have to give it to me, which is bad. Or to remove the permitting requirement altogether and just make New York, Texas, right. which is also <clears throat> bad, right? I, I think that case is going to be 6-3 with all conservatives uh, sticking together. I think Clarence Thomas is writing the majority opinion for that case. I think that case is done. I think that case is ready. I think that case would have been published today tuesday we're recording this on Tuesday, May 31st. But like I think that the point I I think that the this is essentially the first decision day um, after Memorial Day, which is when the court traditionally starts its heavy hitter cases. I think that case was ready. I think that case was done. Um, I think they held that case because we've had two back-to-back high-profile mass shootings. We've had way more than two mass shootings because we live in America. We've yeah. had two back-to-back <clears throat> high-profile mass shootings, including one um, that murdered 19 uh, children. I think that's why they held it back. But they're not. But but it, but it's not going to change their mind. Right. There's no there's no what we have seen from the conservatives on the Supreme Court is that there is no amount of blood in our streets that will make them change their mind. The Supreme Court conservatives are so radically out of step with the rest of the country that even as gun restrictions like background checks and and, and bump stock restrictions poll at their most popular rate ever. We have the Supreme Court not knocking down new gun laws that we can't that Congress is too scared to pass, but knocking down the old gun regulations that we've had. The Supreme Court yeah. has been on a tear, if you will, um, of knocking down old gun regulations. And this case, this Bruin case that will be coming out sometime in June now. Um, is just going to be the next one on that string. It's going to be very bad. It's going to, you know, I, I, I've, I, when I was writing about the case after oral arguments, uh, I'm going to date myself a little here a little bit, but I'm old enough to remember the Bernie Getz situation. That was uh, that was a white guy gone the subway, shot four people who Getz claimed um, <laughs> was trying were trying to rob him. Um, that's what Sam Alito um, essentially referenced in oral arguments uh, in support of the gun lobby. We're going to be back to a situation where people can have weapons on public transport, man. And it's going to be it's going to be a scary situation that the Supreme Court has decided for us all. Yeah, it's like the, the Supreme Court's like the Mongol hordes. You're sweeping across, just laying waste and death and destruction. And they're not building anything. There's no, no concept of, of building a just and equitable America. It's just about destroying and, in fact, rolling back those 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 
hard earned freedoms. And so let's, let's talk about abortion, right? Because this is the, the big one. We saw the draft leak and uh, that should be, you know, next couple of weeks it will probably come out. It'll be the official decision. We know that it, it takes direct aim at abortion, but it, but the reasoning really is, is, is <laughs> it's terrifying. Can you talk about just what is at stake with this decision uh, and not to minimize abortion? I don't want to say like, oh, the other stuff is more important. This is step one, though. One hundred percent, Marcos. So the, I had actually worried that the Supreme Court would do what the draft opinion says they're going to do, but say they were doing something different so that it would actually be difficult to explain to people just how extreme their decision is. But luckily, uh, I guess in this instance, Alito is in YOLO mode. And so he is straight up saying that Roe v. Wade was egregiously wrong when decided and essentially overruling Roe v. Wade without without any kind of without any fig leaf. Right. They're just straight up going for it because they have the votes now. Their legal argument for overturning this 50 year old precedent is basically the last court got it wrong. I mean, they don't have to say anything more than that. But the offensive part that you're that you're referring to is that Alito comes up with a new test for whether or not you have a right or not. And he says that new test is whether or not the right was well grounded in American history. And Alito finds that well grounded in America, that women's rights to their own bodies were not well grounded in American history, that the founding fathers didn't talk about women's rights. The, you know, the the first Supreme Court, they didn't talk about how women had rights to their own bodies. And, you know, Alito's not wrong about that. The founding fathers didn't talk about women's rights. The founding fathers didn't believe women had the right to finish their sentences. So. I'm not surprised that the founding fathers also didn't think that the women had right uh, uh, to their own bodily autonomy. If the test of whether or not we have rights turns out to be whether or not Thomas Jefferson and James Madison thought we had rights, folks, there are a lot of other rights that are going away if that's the new standard, right? And frankly, that's always been the case with the abortion issue because the foundation for, for abortion rights in this country is something called the right to privacy, right? Now, just for the record, that's not where I would have, if I had been on the Supreme Court in 1972, which I'll note I wasn't for various reasons, um, part of that I wasn't alive yet, but you know, still, if, I, if you had given me the opportunity to write that opinion, I would not have, have, have secured abortion rights under the 14th Amendment's uh, substantive due process clause. I would have secured it under the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause. I think that women should have as much rights to their own bodies as men do throughout the entire period of contraception, gestation, what what have you. And that's where I would have put uh, abortion <clears throat> rights. But the Supreme Court, in their wisdom or whatever, uh, put it yeah. under substantive due process, yeah. put it under uh, uh, the right to privacy. And that is a, is a foundation for a lot of our modern rights, including the right to contraception. So Roe v. Wade comes out of a case called Griswold v. Connecticut that happened a few years earlier that secured for the first time the right to contraception. That's where the right to privacy comes from. Now the right to privacy has also been expanded to, uh, for, uh, to be used for marriage rights, for gay rights, for the right to marry outside of your race, for the right to get busy in a Burger King bathroom with whoever, however you want. All the you know, anti-sodomy laws were struck down under the right to privacy. So when conservatives are coming for the right to privacy in Roe v. Wade, 
they're coming for the foundation of a whole bunch of rights. And they're, and those are the things that they'll be taking away next. That's not me saying it. That's Senator, that's Indiana Senator Mike Braun saying straight up that he thought that loving v. Virginia, that's the case that allows for interracial marriage, should be overturned before he walked it back. That's yeah, uh, no. Texas Senator John Cornyn saying straight up during the Kataji Brown Jackson hearings that the next case that they should overturn is Obergefell v. Hodges. That's the case that secures gay marriage. So the Republicans are being honest about what they're going to do next. Even Alito is. I mean, like you said, he could have he could have used language to to uh, to hide that intent, to, to pretend that it was a more narrowly tailored decision. And he I mean, assuming that the draft decision so when that comes out and, and I, I suspect it will be, it's designed explicitly to say those rights don't exist. That's where the, that's where the, the they have spent a generation building a Supreme Court to do this. And now they have it. And now they're winning. And this is what we're and this is what we're left with. Yeah. And you make the point in in the in the book. And so we you know, we started with this idea that that we revert, we revere and uh, lionize the Supreme Court and the Constitution. We're talking about rights that are decided by five to four, six to three. It's 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 a majority of three people deciding what rights hundreds of millions of people have. How is that? A, a just system and taking away rights that were popularly voted on before. Again, the, one of the reasons why the conservatives like using the Supreme court that people I think forget sometimes Republicans want to use the Supreme court because their goals are massively unpopular. Yeah. I already talked about how gun regulations are popular abortion rights are popular yep. safety rights are popular gay marriage is popular like Not all even of these things are yeah. popular ideas and so republicans can't win those those arguments at the ballot box even with their gerrymandering even with their voter suppression they can't win with those ideas at the ballot box so they have to do it through the supreme court which doesn't have to worry about a ballot box doesn't have to again it goes back to their unaccountability that's why the Supreme Court is a Republican's preferred vehicle um, to take away rights because you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it if you had to stand for popular elections. Yeah, I used to, I, you know, I like to point out that Republicans love to walk around saying that we're a center right nation. This was like a mantra, right? We're a center right nation. I haven't heard them say that in about eight years. I mean, eight, maybe even 10 years. They've given that up. They're not even pretending anymore. Yeah, now they're systematically trying to exclude people and use what is a, a broken, poorly designed system to use the the, you know, um, uh, you know, yeah. Trump talking about the system was rigged. The system is rigged. Well, they've done Marcos and, and not subtly at all. They've gone from saying we're a center right nation to saying that we're a white nation like they yeah. just. They've just straight up moved beyond um, the, the artifice, if you will, and are now openly saying that this is a nation of white Christian um, um, values that has that is by white Christians for white Christians. And even their definition of Christianity is suspect um, when it comes to like, 
what actual Christians believe in terms of personal safety um, and not shooting people to death and not killing people at the hands of the state. That's the other, I mean, that's another thing that the Supreme Court is doing every, every day there. Um, ever since alleged attempted at rapist Brett Kavanaugh got on the court, they've been on a killing spree in terms of the death penalty. They've been yeah. um, just denying death penalty appeals left and right. Um, the most recently last week um, in a case called Shin B. Ramirez, um, they denied a death row appeal from a person who was actually innocent was actually innocent on procedural issues. Clarence Thomas, 6'3", just wrote this Kafka-esque procedural ruling that basically makes it makes this innocent man, doesn't give him an avenue to argue for his innocence, and he's said to be put to death in Arizona. Again, show me the Christian and, values in that. And, um, and the language was that it, it, was, it would be insulting to the state. Right. To, Thomas right, would, said that it would be insulting to the state of Arizona to prevent them from killing this <laughs> innocent man. It's just right. We're almost out of time. And so I just really want one last point. We got three minutes and I know you have to run. Um, conservatives, Republicans have done such a good job of making the Supreme Court a political electoral issue, something that liberals never have and have done so poorly. And that's why I really love your book is because it starts creating that hopefully that conversation that why are we taking this institution seriously the way it is? Why are we accepting the broken parts of the, of the Constitution? What do we need to do to change that? Right. So one of the things that, you know, one of the criticisms I've gotten from the book is, well, you're not going to convince a lot of conservatives with that language. And I'm like, I'm not trying to convince conservatives. I'm trying to convince Democrats. I'm trying to convince liberals to take the courts as seriously as conservatives already do. Conservatives have a gang, a cadre of single issue voters on the Supreme Court. I can go to a tabernacle in Utah and find some woman who's like, "Mm, I don't like that Trump was married three times to porn stars, but I have to vote for Trump because of the Supreme Court. She will say that. Whereas it's very hard for me to find the liberal who's just like, you know what? I don't like this person. I don't like this candidate. I don't like these policies, but I have to vote for the Democrats, not just for president, but also for the Senate because of the Supreme Court. Like I just, no, I just don't get people to say that. And if we go, we can go back to 2018, right? To 2016, sorry, where where the Supreme Court was on the line. You had the open seat that was, should have been filled by Merrick Garland. You had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was clearly uh, um, on her kind of last legs, and you didn't have Democrats go to the mattresses for the Supreme Court. And now, now we are living in the time of consequences for that failure. So a lot of what my book is trying to do is to ex- explain to people how if you want anything. Gun rights, gay rights, climate rights. If you want anything, you're going to have to vote for Democrats for the Supreme Court. And you're going to have to work to get, you know, to get people who may not know otherwise to educate, to to motivate. It's not easy. They do it. We, we've been poor at it. So we definitely have to. Everything's at stake. I mean, like you think that you're exaggerating, right? And it's almost it's almost apparent like this can't be that bad. Our very democracy is at stake. Ellie Mistal is a justice writer for The Nation. He is the author of the book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. If you've been listening to this conversation, that is what the book reads like. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's insightful. It's smart. It's funny. It's infuriating. It's, it's all of it. And it's, it's, it's an amazing read. I highly recommend it. And I really highly recommend the underlying thesis, which is we cannot revere this Constitution and the Supreme Court, they are flawed institutions, and we need to start working to change them to our to our to the benefit of American society and our freedoms in the way we actually want to live and the promise of what America is. 
Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Marcos, thank you so much for having me. I, I really cannot recommend this book enough. But like, like I said, the, we have this idea that the founding fathers are, are some sort of whiz, you know, wizened leaders who really knew what they were doing and everything was so well considered and sort of like the philosopher king ideal. And the reality is, as, as Ellie points out in his book, is that the Constitution was a series of compromises hashed out by land-owning rich white people who were the only people that had power in these early years. And the fact that the Constitution has been amended as many times as it has, including the Bill of Rights immediately after the Constitution was ratified, sort of shows that it's not a perfect document. It's a flawed document. And it does need to breathe and adapt with the times. And so it's no coincidence that a conservative, the very word itself means somebody that resists change, while progressives are you know, people who want society to advance based on changing norms and uh, be- changing just society, the way we evolve technologically, society, you know, society ethics, all of these evolve over time. So uh, we have to look at the Supreme Court as a single issue reason to vote. Everything is on the line. And here's what's at stake. If we do not win this November, if Republicans take control of either chamber of, of, of Congress, there is no more Biden agenda. You're going to have a situation where in some of these battleground states where, where conservative uh, turnout is going to be high, they may be able to either hold on or take over social take over uh, secretary of state offices, the people who actually manage the elections in places like uh, Georgia and Arizona. These are critical offices, critical elections, and our very democracy, like I say, is on the line. We cannot trust the Supreme Court to defend democratic principles. It has clearly shown that it will not. And so voting on on these issues, if we take control of this, uh, if we hold both chambers of Congress, if we get a two-seat gain in the Senate, then we can talk about expanding the Supreme Court, term limits for Supreme Court justices, We can talk about statehood for Washington, D.C., which would alleviate some of the inequities of the Senate, which is one of the most undemocratic institutions that pretends to be democratic in the entire planet. And so the difference between winning and losing is is the difference between actually being able to recapture and protect and expand our rights and losing them. You know, always talk about how this is the most important election in our lifetime. And it seems like hyperbole because we always talk about it being the most important election of our lifetime. But conservatives view it that way and they vote that way. And we as liberals do not. And that has to change. That is today's show. Thanks so much to Eli Nistout for joining us. Please, please, please consider reading, buying his book. Allow me to retort a black guy's guide to the Constitution. You can always read him at The Nation. Thanks so much for the whole brief team for making this show work. Carrie, I hope you feel better soon. Thanks to Walter and Kara and Dorothy and and Carolyn for doing everything that they do to make this show run. Thanks you, the viewer and the listener for joining us every week. This is the most important election of our lifetime. I'm so happy to have you as a fellow traveler in this battle. We need to get everybody Engage. We got to fight like everything gets at stake because everything is. Thank you so very much. Catch you next week. 
Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week.